Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Joe Saxton, founder and driver of ideas at NFP Synergy, a research consultancy for charities. Joe is also co-founder and chair of Charity Comms, the professional body for -for not-for-profit communicators, and he's also been chair of the Institute of Fundraising and Parentkind, not to mention uh, taking on the role as a trustee of a number of organisations too. Uh, Joe and I speak about the challenges of emergency funding and what this has done to the opportunities for fundraising that charities are able then to offer to their supporters and potential supporters. We also speak about the impact of the pandemic on the flexibility of charities and what this has meant for the work that they do. There's also this issue, as the episode is titled, of whether charging beneficiaries is the route for some charities to sustainability. And we explore this too. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, fundraising platform Work For Good, and the festive Small Business Star Match Funding campaign. This year, there's a £50,000 match funding pot available. Head to workforgood.co.uk to sign up for free. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Joe Saxton as we talk about charities charging beneficiaries. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Joe Saxton, founder of NFP Synergy. Joe, welcome to Charity Chat. Oh, thanks. Very good to talk to you, Sam. So I know a little bit about you, but for the benefit of our audience, could you just explain a little bit about your background, the work that you've been doing uh, recently as well? Sure. So um, for about 20 years, uh, I have been um, working at NFP Synergy. Um, at the beginning of this month, the beginning of November, I Uh, sold the company to two of my colleagues, uh, which allows me to um, do a range of different things. Uh, I'm still going to be doing lots of work for NFP Synergy on the project side, but I'm keen in particular to do more work on the sort of the the free stuff of talking about what things are going on in the sector, uh, looking at a number of things. And as some people know, um, I do quite a lot of writing, both fiction and about charities, and I'd like to have more time for that. And is that... If you don't mind me asking, is that born out of the things you've seen changing over the pandemic or is it just? Well, at NAPC, we've always had a, a, a really important part of our work was to produce things that were free. And we kind of produced about 150 free reports over the years, um, coming out at around 10 a year on average. Um, and what we found is that lots of people like that. Uh, there, there's a, a number of people who do stuff they can get, but some of it's paid for. Uh, and we decided every time we do things like that, they're going to be free. Uh, and then, but there's lots more that we can be talking about. And I think, yeah, some of it's definitely coming out of the pandemic. Um, we, we've just published our final bit of work about what's happened with the pandemic, where we talked to a number of people and tried to distill the trends. But I'm also very interested in the future of fundraising. Fundraising mm. taken a real battering in recent years, you know, kind of combination of things uh, beating away on, on, on different size gdpr has made it difficult in some areas tough and fundraising has more or less completely disappeared um but the pandemic has sort of uh, done a left hook right hook if you like on on fundraising so if, if the left hook was gdpr and and um giving supporters power that they were probably entitled to then then the other side has been um bashing people on the outdoor stuff the charity retail stuff the face-to-face stuff anything where you had social contact 
has really taken a difficult time in the pandemic. And what we don't know is how how that's going to recover. Really, it's it's uh, a lot of it involves older people, older volunteers. Um, a lot of it involved cash, um, uh, and cash and older volunteers and face to face stuff have all suffered in the pandemic and and we don't know how the next year or two today and talking today there's talk of a new variant and so mm. i think the pandemic in some way shape or form uh, or covid in some way shape or form we have to presume will be with us for the next few years and so i think probably like lots of people you know back in march 2020 you know, we thought, oh, maybe a month or two, and then we'll all be back to normal. Uh, and now I'm not even clear that uh, uh, kind of um, several years will all be back to normal um, because the vaccines will come, new variants will come. So we may have to learn how to live with COVID bubbling away in the background rather than uh, believe that somehow just around the corner is the end of this, this terrible uh, illness. I mean, it's it's absolutely, and it's a very kind of bleak outlook, and it's it's been kind of bleak in many ways for the last few months, if not, as you say, right back until kind of March 2020 here in the UK, um, for from the start of the pandemic. But I, I guess also, I mean, in some ways, things seem to seem to be going seemingly going back to normal in terms of at least you know my inbox is bombarded again by Black Friday. We're recording this in uh, November 2021. So, you know, I'm getting all of this consumer stuff coming back to me. You know, there's a sense that, you know, you can buy your way out of the, the bleakness of the pandemic. Do we get any sense, do you think, that that can also be the case for charities? I know that we've got um, Giving Tuesday, for example, coming up uh, next week. And, uh, and then Christmas, and a lot of charities are raising funds at Christmas historically anyway. Um, do we get any sense that maybe charities... Could see that as a, a boon, you know, kind of the pandemic is creating some sense of solidarity or that people want to do more good because life's pretty difficult and they can understand that a little bit more. There definitely is that sense. I think part of the challenge is that that sense doesn't last very long. Uh, so if you look at most emergency situations, uh, people maybe are able to pay attention for a week or two weeks. Mm. But I don't think the public go on giving kind of month after month because of some big external factor. Sure. So I think we have to have sustainable giving uh, when you look at it. Uh, and also one of the great joys of fundraising and the charity sector is its sheer diversity. And the problem is that when you start to have a pandemic and therefore you squeeze that diversity, you narrow it down. Charities are doing less things, less ways of fundraising, less ways of delivering service because a chunk of them they can't because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. you, you then have a problem that actually organisations can't do all the things that they know they can do best. And if, if you have in your inbox 10 emails from a charity going, help, we, we're really short of cash, you can't respond to them all. And if you then get a, a mailing a week later saying, help, we need your uh, emergency cash, you know, there's only so much of that people can take. So diversity is also what allows people to tolerate it because you don't necessarily add it all up and go, oh, great, yeah, I gave some money when I was in the high street today and I bought something in the charity shop and I've got a direct debit and I bought that product that had a charitable donation in it. And then I sponsored my niece when she went on that uh, thing for that charity. Oh, and then somebody else asked me to go to an event. So there are all sorts of ways in which those types of giving add up to be really significant precisely because of their difference, precisely because of the diversity. 
and narrowing that diversity where less of those can happen uh, means that people are probably less likely to give to less organizations because there are simply less ways of doing it. Uh, and that's the problem. I do think you're absolutely right that we are better this year than we are were last year, where people were sort of, I think, holding back because the pandemic is about to end. And certainly, I think people are quite a lot more optimistic than they were since the beginning, you know, since we sort of uh, eased all those restrictions in in, in May, June time. Um, I guess winter's coming, whether that's going to produce a new set of challenges, we don't really know. Um, uh, but I think part of it is working out how we have income generation for charities in a world in which this thing called COVID is in some way, shape or form in the background uh, and to have new ideas, new ways of doing things, precisely because a number of them have become a lot less difficult, a lot less profitable, generating enough income to make it worth it. Um, charity shops is, a, is a, a very good example where I suspect we're going to get less older volunteers, precisely because they're a bit worried. They kind of went jeepers. I know three people who died of COVID. Do I really want to spend my last few years in the charity shop? And maybe I'll just use some of those funds to uh, go on that Caribbean cruise, get, go on holiday a bit more, take it easy, etc. And so that's the worry that things like charity shops will become harder. And you combine that with the fact that the high street is under threat because people are doing more and more online. So some of these things all combine together to make it more difficult for charities. And that's that's a, that's a real worry. I know that uh, recently uh, you and F NFP Synergy have been speaking to fundraising leaders as part of one of your pieces of work, and and I, I guess I'm I mean I'm I'm interested in, in uh, fundraising leadership, I and mean, I know we've spoken about it on this podcast. One thing that that came out of that report, which I found really interesting and kind of struck home for me, I suppose, was that those fundraising leaders and those organisations that did better in the pandemic were the ones that were able, I mean, there are a number of different factors, but one of the things was that they were able to adapt and to change and to move quickly. I mean, the, the word that seems to get uh, thrown around a lot, certainly within my uh, hearing, is pivoting and being able to pivot might be a kind of one aspect of it. I suppose th that's 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 really kind of interesting to because I suppose a lot of charities, majority of charities are very small charities. So the hope would be that those might be better served to be able to move quickly. But I suppose counter to that, also kind of touching what we were talking about is this sense maybe of fatigue that, you know, in the initial, that kind of initial emergency situation of the first few months of the pandemic, charities were moving, changing how they do things. But then also there's this kind of mental health, well-being, the kind of the fatigue of the situation dragging out. Do you get any sense from those people that you spoke to that some of the, uh, ability of moving and changing is going to be harpered by an extended situation that we're in? Certainly, um, if, if you want as an organisation to, to be good in changing times, you need to be good at pivoting, as you call it. Flexibility, I think I yeah. slightly prefer as a term. Uh, I slightly think a bit too much of um, a strictly uh, on a Saturday <laughs> night when it comes to pivoting. Um, but, but yes, you have to be flexible. Uh, and Interesting. I'm not sure if size is is a key determinant of your ability to be flexible, precisely because the small organisation is theoretically flexible. But I did a workshop yesterday with a, a range of small charity chief executives and chairs. And one of the things, you know, they will say is it's just me or it's three mm. part time members of staff. And 
you know, um, one of them talked about a problem they'd had and they said, that was my member of staff's complete role for the day when they had a bit of a social media thing go and they didn't do the other things. So you don't have that resilience built in when you've got a small organization. Uh, and it also slightly depends on your, your trustees. Will they pitch in and go, great, yes, of course we can help that. Or will they still be saying, ah, now we have to refer that to the finance committee. Now, their next meetings in January, and then the minutes of that will need to come back to the main board in March. And then we may be able to authorize something uh, by the end of March. So those processes and systems mm. and, and whatever, and who's going to do them? Uh, because um, doing extra work, flexibility, pivoting, uh, is is time consuming it's people consuming it's it's energy consuming uh, and there is definitely only so much of it and you know the, the biggest thing I feel for in the pandemic is all those people who've had to restructure their organizations their fundraising teams whoever else it may be because you do not do any kind of restructuring without a huge amount of time and energy and if you do it well and you do it humanely you have to spend a lot of time talking to people and saying okay this is what's going to happen this may is what happened to your job you need to understand this doesn't necessarily reflect you on in you uh, and that's just very very time consuming and all the time you're doing a restructure your your fundraising team may not be actually doing the fundraising you know mm. they are they are simply doing the they're getting you to a state where you can have a reduced cost base in order to do get back to the fundraising so that's a real challenge as well is 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 all of that and there's probably only so much you can do if you look at all of the evidence that comes from the nhs which has probably had to do even more of this in the charity sector you know are we going to have a covid surge aren't we going to how are we going to get this waiting list down the staff fatigue, the, the the mental health fatigue that people have about doing this over a sustained period. Most of us, you know, can sprint for a short length of time. That is what sprinting is all about. One of the challenges for lots of organisations is that effectively you're being after you're being asked to sprint, but for the length of a time of a marathon, and you never thought it was going to go on that long, um, and you have to do it continually, uh, and that's very difficult. And it's not at all hard to consider that. A bunch of people who did their restructuring last year will discover a new landscape of fundraising or communications or charities in which they no longer have people in the right jobs and therefore they have to go around it all again. Mm. Uh, and it's people who work with and it's colleagues and all of that. And that's a real challenge too. conceivable even that char some charities should look to their beneficiaries to help support their organization financially and if so how should charities be considering this and going about considering this uh, absolutely I mean, I mean i think any organization needs to look at all the different sources uh, of income it has uh, and, and and if you crudely divide up um, income sources into two major types uh, by uh, type of uh, source and uh, three ways in which they can come from. You've got maybe about six different broad overall categories. So the two major places that, that people get, that charities get their income from is one is from individuals and the other is from organizations. Sure. Uh, but then e within each of those, you say, okay, with the individuals, people can either, they can give their money, uh, they can uh, take part in the social enterprise um, type activity, a charity shop type thing, um, uh, charity trading uh, or, or whatever else it is, uh, uh, or they can give, uh, basically pay for a service that they receive as a beneficiary. Uh, and all of those need to be considered. 
Uh, and actually, you know, th there's an institute of, of fundraising and there are lots of people called fundraisers. There are far less called beneficiary income manager, but actually they exist in reality. Um, uh, and one of the things we've been, and we published a report earlier uh, this year called A Small Price to Pay, uh, looking at the potential for more income generation from beneficiaries. Now, the first thing to say is income generation from beneficiaries is already incredibly common. If you go to a conference by NCVO or the Institute of Fundraising or the Char Charity Finance Group, you are effectively a beneficiary being charged for the services you get because those organizations agree to help, um, exist to help certain types of organization and the conferences they run deliver that mission. And therefore, when you pay for them, you are generating income for them as a beneficiary. So there's lots of that going on. When you go to relate to uh, have some relationship support and you pay for that session, you are a beneficiary who is paying for the service you receive. And so when you go to museums or art galleries or national trust, you are a beneficiary paying for the service that you get. Um, you, are, you are not giving it uh, in that sense. And so it's already happening a lot. The question is whether organizations look at the world through that lens enough. Uh, and the answer I think I would say is, no, I don't think they look at it uh, through that lens enough. How can we get the people to help us more? Uh, and there are a number of very good reasons why uh, it, it makes sense to look at beneficiaries, partly because they're a lot keener on that service being delivered than somebody who's just being asked to donate. Um, now, that may mean that they pay a subsidized rate. So if you go to um, a PDSA pet hospital, uh, they don't have a mandatory charging system, but they have suggested donation levels. So effectively, you may pay £10. The service may cost £30. But actually, if the PDSA could edge that up to £12 for all the millions of people who get the benefit of that PDSA service, yeah. that is an enormous financial difference to them over the course of the year. But also, it's, it's effectively, charging beneficiaries is about rationing. If, if Relate or Outward Bound or, or National Trust said, they need a pay, come on in, um, they might not be able to cope with all those people who, who would come on in, who would use their service. Uh, you know, everyone said, oh, great, this Outward Bound course is free now. I think I'll go along. You know, they would have no mechanism to say, no, you can't come along. So it's not just about um, generating income. There are other reasons why you charge beneficiaries. But um, making the deficit be reduced between what you pay for a service uh, and what you uh, the cost of the service is really important for organizations that may be finding it more difficult. Uh, and broadly speaking, you know, what I hear from people is that those people who are heavily dependent on fundraising events uh, in whatever shape or form or charity shops or all that social contact type stuff have suffered. And therefore, they may be the ones that are really needing to think carefully about how they generate extra income. And there's only so many asking much of donors you can do. Um, but, but also, there's quite a lot of evidence that says when you charge beneficiaries something, they value the service more. Right. So um, there was quite a lot of work in, in places like uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, where if you say uh, to somebody, here's a, a mosquito um, insecticide-treated bed net, mm. uh, really effective in reducing malaria, uh, uh, the spread of malaria. Now, if you give it to somebody, a lot of people use it as a bed net. 
But when you talk to people, you give it away, a lot of people say, well, this is quite nice. It's a good bit of cloth. Yeah, uh, I'll use it for something else. So people have used those, those bed nets for, for fishing nets because mm. um, they're quite a good fishing net. They've got a bit greatly cold in it. Uh, somebody told me that they'd heard of somebody using one as a wedding dress. Now, all of those things given away, well, they can't value it that much. They give me a bit of cloth. Well, I'll have it. Why not? Why wouldn't I? So there's quite a lot of evidence when you charge for things, people value them more because who's mad enough to give something away for free? Um, so charging people also makes the usage of that service in some case get better usage, be more valued and so on. Uh, and then you can close the gap. Uh, and that's really important because also if you can get your beneficiaries to cover your core costs, you can then use fundraising as an icing on the cake. And that's a win-win because um, a lot a lot of people might go, well, I'm not sure I'm going to pay for this bog standard service. But if you're telling me my donation is the icing on the cake to really make this service much better than the average, that's suddenly, that's really interesting. That's, that's a really good proposition to put. So the, the, the beneficiary pays for it, um, the core themselves, and then the fundraising goes to make it bigger, better, brighter, faster, shinier. Uh, and that's a, that's a good way of, of bringing your income sources together productively. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the the idea of bringing beneficiaries in as stakeholders, and I know you know some charities, whether or not they have those beneficiaries contributing to to um, whether it's membership organisation or not, um, they they would see uh, them as stakeholders. But I suppose as you're you're talking about this sense of them uh, maybe and also this kind of means tested element to it, so that if people can afford to pay, then they're making a, a small payment. Then that that kind of seems to seems to be something quite positive about that in terms of people feeling like they are part of it rather than it's being given. And I suppose also I use the term beneficiary all the time in my work and on this podcast. But I, I read recently an article where it was questioning whether we should even consider changing that term. That maybe it's is beneficiary too loaded with a sense of kind of power imbalance and maybe that people kind of having their hand out saying I'm a beneficiary. Do you have a view on that? Do you have any kind of opinion on whether beneficiary is a term that might be worth considering changing? Uh, I think there probably is a better term out there. I, I don't know what it is. No, they I didn't know either are, in this article. No, <laughs> so. I think there are a lot worse terms out there that people have. So, you know, I know a lot of people will talk about clients. So in the social welfare sector, they will say, you know, our client this and our client that. So I don't think you'd ever heard hear a charity who has, um, I don't know, a foster child coming in um, to, 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 you know, in, into a, a placement or something. They, I don't think they'd ever say, ah, oh, our beneficiary has a new placement. I think they would say our client has a new placement. Mm -hmm. So I think in some sectors, client is a very common uh, bit of terminology. Of course, if you're Friends of the Earth or World Wildlife Fund, then beneficiary is a bit of a bonkers term because the beneficiary definitely implies a human person mm. um, and for environmental ch charities for animal charities you know that doesn't make sense mm. uh, or it doesn't have the same value as a term so people talk about clients people talk about beneficiaries but you then get into what is actually a terrible charity sector habit in which rather than using a short in a short but imperfect 
uh, terminology, they use a long and gobbledygook terminology. So, you know, you always have this, this dilemma about well, what, what do we call the charity sector? Well, I think charity sector is good and simple. But then people talk, oh, no, no, no. Well, what about the voluntary organisations? What about the community organisations? Ah, oh, we should call it the voluntary and community sector. Ah, oh, yes, but there's, that doesn't quite cover it. So maybe the civil society sector. No, no, no. Well, maybe they're at the third sector, you know. So, you, you can end up, if you get too hung up on the terminology, on having something which you move from something that everyone has a 95% understanding about what you're talking about to attempting to have 100% understanding, but actually people are a bit less clear. I'm never clear who are the people that are being referred to. When people talk about the voluntary and community sector, uh, who, who, is, who is not covered by that? That is is uh, 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 now. I'm sure some of it's have very small community groups and all of that. But actually, by and large, those aren't the people that engage with what charities do or the sector bodies do or anything. So you end up with a terminology that suits people who aren't necessarily even dare I use the term beneficiaries of of, mm-hmm. of that piece of work anyway. So it suits people's ideological perspective about who beneficiaries are, but actually doesn't make it clearer that you're going to reach those people. And the danger is people think you turn the term if you change the terminology, you're going to get to people you otherwise wouldn't get to, and actually you don't. So, absolutely. And I'm I'm pleased you raised the. Uh, I use the kind of third sector, voluntary sector, civil society. I use all those terms interchangeably with the charity sector too. So, I think you know that's uh, that's spoken to me certainly because uh, I'm at a loss. Oh, you're very bad. I think you you should get a single terminology and stick to it. And, and, <laughs> I probably and, should. And I hope in any grant applications you made, you're very clear about the difference <laughs> between all those bits of what must be about six bits of terminology as well that, that people use differently. It can be perplexing. I, I guess also I come back to, um, certainly when I'm kind of talk, looking at marketing and PR and things like that, which is part of my role now, you know, I, 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 I keep coming back to something I heard once about, you know, in, in certainly direct marketing, the uh, and direct mail the idea that you're writing for a seven-year-old and I suppose in a way that to me that speaks to me because kind of simplifying the message in in all scenarios is I think something we should do right if we want to cut across to as many people as possible and I think the same in the charity stroke civil stroke third sector um that's probably something we should consider as well and maybe the name of our sector needs to be uh, thought about in those terms. I, I, I have a slightly different test of that, not necessarily seven-year-old, but I always encourage people to read it out loud to somebody else. You know, so yes. You, if you're writing out something, and that does two things: it, it, if you read things out loud, you are forced to notice the six-line sentences that you've allowed to creep in, where you've got lots of clauses and subclauses. You're going and so blue on. in the face, trying to read it without. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and you're trying to keep going. Oh, oh, whatever. <laughs> Um, so reading it out loud really helps you simplify it. But also if somebody else listening to it kind of goes, yeah, you've lost me. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, you've just used too much jargon, you know, whatever. And, that, and that's the other thing the sector, along with a lot of other sectors, is good at is, you know, all those three letter abbreviations. I can never remember that acronyms or anacronyms, mm. but ac- all those three letter acronyms for X and Y and Z, you know, which suddenly become incomprehensible. Uh, so all, all of that, reading out loud, whatever it is you've written, yeah, for me is a good test of, of the simplicity. Uh, and the danger is in a lot of charities, you end up with some third party corporate speak um, in which, you know, all of that complex language creeps in. You're desperately trying to make sure that you've got all the terminology exactly right. 
uh, and it's not very helpful. And then people kind of go, well, I wonder why these beneficiaries don't come along and talk to us anymore. And it's like, well, it's probably because it sounds like you've got your head up your ass talking to yourself. <laughs> uh, so there, there is a danger in a, a lot of organisations, you know, and, and we've just been doing some work looking at um, social media coverage and who does well in charities on social media coverage. Uh, and actually, the interesting thing is, you know, to do well on social media coverage, you absolutely need to get away from the third party corporate speak. You know, if you start posting stuff on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, you know, in which you talk in a third party voice, you know, because what works with all social media is the personality, the individuals. Uh, we did a little uh, quiz yesterday at the workshop I was running. Could, could people identify the top 10 people with Twitter followers in the world? The important thing actually is that group could for the most part, but these people have hundreds of millions of followers because they are talking about their lives, they're talking as individuals and so on. And, and that's one of the things that uh, charities need to remember. And I remember being taught it very early in my days as a fundraiser at Oxfam, you know, mm. people give to people. Mm. Uh, and so if you want somebody to give you money, you have to talk uh, a sip. Uh, you are a person um, talking to another person. You can't kind of talk about, uh, uh, you know, as if you're the sort of the great voice of a charity and a corporate speaking so on. You have to be real people. Uh, and actually, that, I think that's a good line for anything. If you, if you want to talk to beneficiaries um, uh, and explain what you're doing, you need to talk as a human to another human. Uh, and you need to do it as if you were doing it verbally as well as, well as in writing, because um, we all live in a world, particularly with social media, where we're a lot more used to shorter sentences, shorter, simpler speech, less words, you know. Uh, and let's face it, um, charities are really good at uh, having too many words and pretty poor at having too few words. Um, you know, the average charity set of accounts now is typically mm -hmm. well over 50 pages for a decent-sized organisation. Wow. And then people kind of go... We don't seem to be able to get anyone to relate to what we do. It's like, yeah, it's not surprising, you know, because you can't explain how your year was in under 50 pages. We've got this, and I hear what you're saying about reading things out loud. And actually, I've I've I'm never been a particularly good um, proofreader, I'll be honest, and and even you know, particularly good writer. And I, I think I've finally got the hang of it by, as you say, kind of reading it out. So now I read out pretty much all that I'm writing. And it's helpful working from home occasionally because I'm in this separate room. So there's no one to listen to me talking. Um, but then I suppose the, the with all the stuff we're doing digitally, writing emails, writing social media posts, then it's, there's maybe a kind of a disconnect there as well. I suppose we've got Zoom on the one hand and, and all these kind of meetings where we can now talk more face-to-face -face with people, albeit through a computer. But then we've also got an increased use of social media where we're writing all the time. And I wonder kind of what kind of conflict that has to this sense of authenticity and building kind of deep, close, personal bonds with um, supporters and beneficiaries. It's a, it's a, a tricky, uh, tricky landscape, I think. Uh, I think left to their own devices, most charities start as a group of committed, passionate, inspired individuals who say, we need to do something. And they speak from the heart and they, they really get people excited and going about it. And then you come back 50 years later and they've turned into this, this big bureaucratic monster that, that, whose tendency 
is to speak in more complex terms, in more complex ways, uh, and so on. And so actually anybody who communicates what a charity's work does needs to bear in mind is that if they leave a charity with its own devices, it will get more complicated, longer, harder to understand, spoken more jargon and whatever. Uh, and part of the job of a fundraiser or a communicator, or particularly somebody who does social media, is to kind of pull the organization back from getting more and more complicated to getting more and more uh, navel gazing in terms of what it does and to talk more simply because the most effective people in the world on social media or um, you know, on videos or other people who get messages across in a really simple way you know that, that inspire people and get me you know no, nobody went viral for having a complex talk turgid kind of group of paragraphs about with you know, full of acronyms and all of that they go viral because they manage to express something really simply and really clearly uh, and and you just have to remember that charities are forever trying to move in the opposite direction for that if they're not very careful uh, and so you need to pull them in the, the the direction of simplicity and and clarity and and kind of talking human to human not kind of complex uh, organization as if they're talking to another complex organization uh, and that's a real challenge uh, you know and it's just one of the, the tendencies you know but but most organizations you know left alone devices get more bureaucratic more slower moving less flexible none of this pivoting uh you know and and the interesting thing coming back to the beginning of this conversation with the pandemic is those people who had leadership who have chief executives or trustees who managed to say actually we have to act and in many cases, I think almost any kind of acting, any kind of doing, any kind of decision making was probably better than none at all. Mm. You know, uh, and, and so they're kind of, OK, we need to get staff moving, working from home. What are we going to do about that? We need to have people able to communicate with each other. OK, we've got to get some kind of um, kind of Zooms or Teams software or whatever else it is to do all of that. We need to work out um, how we continue to get things done. Um, you know, at a distance. So, you know, those kind of decisions about what you're going to do um, and all the evidence I think that we have to date from the pandemic is people who made harder decisions earlier and more decisively did better than those people who hung on and said, oh, I think it'll come good. You know, no, we just hang on a little bit longer. It'll all be all right, you know. Uh, and I think that's true of fundraising. I think that's true of communications. I think it's true for charities as a whole. Um, uh, and some organizations, particularly those who have been in the spotlight, a lot of the health charities have really seen their services go up um, because people are going, what, what's going to happen about ATSTA? What's going to happen about my cancer? What's going to happen about you know, X or Y or Z con condition? You know, th those organizations have had to respond not just on the fundraising comp side, but also on the services side as well. Uh, and you know, that's been a lot of hard work, but many organizations have been lifesavers, literally. Um, when it comes to helping people out because of what's happening with the pandemic. Joe Saxton, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Sam, it's been very good to talk to you. A big thank you to Joe Saxton for sharing his knowledge and expertise with us. Joe raised the issue of charities having to restructure as a consequence of the pandemic and how time-consuming and disruptive this has been for them. It has had to happen in order for some charities to survive, but it takes up vital time, resource and focus at a time, ironically, where so many charities are needed more than ever. This then leads into how fatigued staff and leaders are 
and the impact this is likely having on their mental health and well-being. Perhaps you, dear listener, can understand this, as I'm sure we all can understand and empathise with um, that. Joe uh, used the analogy of being asked to sprint for the length of time of a marathon. I, for one, feel less physically or mentally fit than I did last year. There are plenty of examples of charities asking their beneficiaries to contribute to the service they are benefiting from, whether that is paying the full cost or a subsidised cost. Examples of this exist across our sector, with charitable membership bodies such as the Chartered Institute of Fundraising being just one example. Joe doesn't think that enough organisations are considering this model, especially as there are good reasons why beneficiaries may want to see the project delivered more, in fact, than some donors um, who are not using the service. In some cases, donors may also be on board with the idea that beneficiaries are particularly uh, partially paying for the service that they're benefiting from. This could be a tantalising offer for funders who are looking to get bang for their buck and adding extra value to an existing service which is partially supported. Beneficiaries, as a term... Uh, may be be loaded. Uh, But what is the alternative? And how could we ever find a consensus on an alternative across our sector? Does this consideration play into the pitfall that the sector may regularly fall into of overcomplicating language to explain our work? In fact, even as Joe said, the the choice of term for our sector is uh, up for debate with so many different options. Charity, voluntary, civil, third just being some of them. One thing that resonated with me in what Joe spoke about in relation to charities communicating specifically on social media, but maybe generally too, is that charities need to get beyond the corporate speak because people give to people. I've seen so much of this and probably guilty of it too. The dumbing down of wording to fit with a brand rather than necessarily being authentic and, uh, and, and that you know, doesn't really necessarily resonate with uh, an audience as well. As a fundraiser and a communicator myself, I really heard Joe's point about fundraisers and communicators in charities needing to pull charities in the direction of simplicity and away from the potentially inevitable move that charities make towards complexity. This is one of many points I will take with me into the coming weeks and months and I hope that you will too. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, fundraising platform Work for Good, and the festive Small Business Star Match Fund funding campaign. This year, there's a £50,000 match funding pot available. Head to workforgood.co.uk to sign up for free. Giant Squid Audio Lab, thank you for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. And of course, our friends Forrester Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.